With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp's software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Cards issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC terms and conditions apply. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family cannolis and spins mean everything now you want to get mixed up in the family business introducing the godfather at chumpacasino.com test your luck in the shadowy world of the godfather slot someday i will call upon you to do a service for me play the godfather now at chumpacasino.com welcome to the family no purchase necessary vgw group void where prohibited by law 18 plus terms and conditions apply Hey Mets fans, welcome to episode 253 of Amazing Avenue Audio, the official podcast of your SB Nation New York Mets site, Amazing Avenue. My name is Brian Salvatore, thank you for joining us this week. First up, we have Chris McShane and myself talking about a bevy of Mets topics, few of which are actually relevant, but we had some fun, so uh, check it out. Well Chris, after a uh, a bit of an up and down week for the Mets, more, more down than up, we uh, we gather on Wednesday night. The Mets just took two of three from the Phillies. They got decent starting pitching from both Rafael Montero and Robert Gazelman. Um, but as, you know, every week seems to be for the Mets, there are some new injuries to talk about. 
uh, Wilmer Flores broke his nose in the most spectacular way possible. I cannot imagine a more unlucky turn of event happening for a baseball player, which is essentially the Mets season in one very small nutshell. Were you watching the game when this happened? Uh, I was not. I... I've tried to avoid watching every second of every game. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, I was recapping so, the night, so I had to watch it. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I don't remember specifically how I heard about it, but I did see a replay, like the one slow-mo replay that was out there. And uh, yeah. Yeah. If you could describe the 2017 Mets season in one GIF, it would be that. Yeah, I was watching the game in my uh, basement, and my wife was one floor up doing the dishes, and she heard me gasp. And was like, <laughs> what happened? And I was like, you're never going to believe this. And I showed it to her, and she was like, oh, how is that even possible? I was like, it, it's it's the Mets. That's how it's possible. <laughs> uh, it was, I mean, it was really just unbelievably bad luck. Oh, yeah. I mean... How many different ways can you foul off, you know, a baseball and, and to have it hit you squarely in the face? And I have to give uh, I have to give Brian McCann some credit. As soon as it happened, McCann called for a trainer. He must have I don't know if he heard it, which is kind of uh-huh. a disgusting thing to say, but like he knew instantly that you know shit went down. And then he had to make sure that he was taken care of. So good for Brian McCann for uh, for being, yeah. you know, for taking care of uh, Flores in that situation. Well, I, I feel like if you're going to be Mr., you know, baseball is very serious and no fun can be had on the field in front of me, then you better be on top of things like that when they go <laughs> wrong, right? Fair enough, yes. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but, yeah, in addition to that, uh, Ahmed Rosario has a finger injury. Yeah, has kept him out of some games. Uh, David Wright had rotator cuff surgery. Uh, yeah. Uh, TJ Rivera is about to have Tommy John surgery. Josh Edgen had knee surgery. Michael Conforto had shoulder surgery. Am I forgetting anybody? Uh, it's very possible, but nobody that I can think of at the moment. Yeah. If you're a Met who has had surgery who did not make that list, we apologize. Yes. We did not purposely try to uh, to leave you out of this conversation. Um, but, yeah, I mean, you know, some of those were expected. The, the T.J. Rivera surgery has been a long time coming. The Conforto surgery is no surprise. The rotator cuff for right, though, I mean, I, I think we all are are past the point of ever thinking David Wright's an everyday player again. Even but, I am there, so yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I I did not think he was going to need a surgery of this magnitude just to get back on the field this week, I mean, this, this season. Yeah. This is a major surgery, Chris. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's, I mean, it's, it, it went from something that felt like, okay, you know, he had the neck surgery. He's, you know, not quite back, not quite back. And then, uh, you know, rotator cuff is one that we don't hear too much about anymore. Um, you know, for whatever reason, 
the ten arm injuries has shifted toward elbows. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm trying to think. I I do not remember the last Met to have a rotator cuff operation. Do you? I like. No, I, can't, I can't. I can't think of anybody. I mean, I'm sure it's happened. Yeah. Was it a yeah, pitcher? Maybe. Well, yeah. I mean, you would think pitcher, but with pitchers, it tended to be, you know, more common. Uh, however many years ago, twenty. Yeah. Twenty-five, thirty. You know, whatever it was. Um. Yeah, I mean, I so I get like you you, you heard the reactions to this stuff and and. I mean, I think anybody who's ever heard me talk about David Wright before knows that I res- fully respect his own decision to do what he wants with his career, to try to keep it going, to earn every dollar of the contract, no matter what happens uh, from here on out, because, you know, it's not his fault that his body has betrayed him, all of that stuff. But, you know, you heard the reactions to this stuff and, and framing it in a sort of optimistic way of saying, Hey, at least we know what's wrong. Uh, you know, it's independent of the other stuff. Yeah, whether or not that's true, I don't know. Uh, again, I feel like <laughs> the the title of the podcast should just be Amazing Avenue Audio. Uh, we're not doctors. <laughs> Yet. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> but for right now, we're not medical doctors. <laughs> so given all of that, I don't. I don't know. By the way, yeah, I, 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 I'm doing a, a quick uh, a quick search here, and it appears that Jonathan Neese had a partial rotator cuff tear. Ah, uh, yeah, but I, that that's right. And I don't okay. know if he ever had the surgery or not. I don't think he did. I was gonna say, didn't Neese have rotator cuff surgery? But I'm not. I I think I think I'm just re- remembering when he had the surgery. Sorry, when he had the injury, rather. Not the surgery. Yeah. Uh, oh, oh! Did Johan have one? Well, his was the capsule thing. Yes, yes, you're right. Okay. Which is why I'm not super optimistic about Michael Conforto. <laughs> yeah. That one hurts the most for me. Like not, not that I don't. Like David Wright, the only Mets jersey I've ever purchased is a David Wright jersey. Yeah. David Wright is almost exactly my age. And okay. so when I was like, you know, a 21-year-old Mets fan, David Wright was just coming up. I feel like I have more emotional investment in David Wright than anyone who's ever worn a Mets uniform. But this has been coming for so long. The first Wright injury broke my heart. But at this point, you know... I've had dogs my whole life. At a certain point, your dog is not going to get any sprier. You know, it's just, it walks slower, its eyesight goes, whatever. It's sad, but it's kind of like the inevitable end of it. I'm not saying David Wright's going to be put out the pasture anytime soon. But, you know, you just see him, he's just, every time he tries to come back, something happens. Conforto was in the, was, you know, the beginning of this great career. And a fucking swing undid it. Right. This wasn't he wasn't Mike Baxter saving Johan's no hitter. Where like you're giving yeah, up no. you're giving up part of your body in, in, in triumph here. Like he swung a bat and he might have ruined his career. Yeah, 
and hey, I'm hoping he didn't. You know, yes. I'm hoping yeah. it's just a little a little break. But you know, when you hear capsule regarding somebody's shoulder, uh, it's not ideal. It's I not mean, what you want to hear. To be fair, he is not going to be using the shoulder in the way Johan Santana used the shoulder. Right. Yeah, and it's it's a very different context, and it's a different part of the soldier. I, uh, soldier. Shoulder. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a different part of the uh, body, that, right? I think... Yes, I believe so. If I remember, it was anterior and posterior, and I think they had different ones. Whether or not that makes much of a difference, again, new title of the podcast, not a doctor. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, but, you know, I, what I was going to say is I, I feel like, you know, Conforto is a player who, I mean, look, if Conforto is healthy next season and Dom Smith continues to look like me at first base, there is there is very legitimate reason for thinking, okay, if Conforto has shoulder problems and can't throw as well, why not try Conforto at first base? That was an idea a long time ago that seemed dumb. Now that idea made us, maybe doesn't seem so dumb. I'm not advocating for it at this moment, but if throwing is a problem because of his shoulder surgery, I right. I could see far stupider solutions to this problem. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, not to jump the gun and make a judgment on just shy of 100 plate appearances worth of playing time, uh, but, you know, he's young, it could change, it's very early, but Dom Smith has not burst onto the scene, I would say. That's uh, a kind way of putting it. Thus far in his Major League debut. Yeah. 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 I mean, it's it's uh, it hasn't been it hasn't been good uh, at the plate or in the fields, and that's fine. I'm <laughs> I'm rooting for him. <laughs> uh, you know, partly because there's no reason to root against him. Uh, you know, he's a Met. He, he's here. Uh, you know, he's a young kid. He's a good story. And partly because of necessity that I don't, you know, I think they are just going to say, hey, look, he's not there yet, but this is the guy. You know, we're going to we're gonna roll with him and pay him, you know, the league minimum for a couple of years and kind of take it from there. So what was the last... Who was the last truly disappointing Mets position player prospect? And I'm not talking about a minor prospect who didn't who didn't set the world on fire. Who was the last like really big everybody was sure he was going to be the next big thing and then it didn't work out that well. Um was it Jay Payton? Is that too long ago? I don't know. Um It's not that long ago. He's not that old, right? Am I dating myself? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, let's put it this way. Jay Payton hasn't been a Met since I was in college. And I graduated from college in 2004. So, uh... Yeah, but he had, you know, looking back, Baseball America had him at 21 in the game going into 1996, 34 in 97. That That's a, a guy who had, like, some serious prospect hype. Right. Um, I'm trying to think. Is there a position player since then who had... That kind of hype who who didn't work out. 
there haven't been that many position players to come through the organization who had that much hype. Right. Well, that that's kind of what I'm thinking. Like I'm just looking back on draft picks, and uh, the I guess the the notable position player draft picks of the last you know seven or eight years were Chikini, who may not pan out, but he was never super uh, hyped as a prospect. You know, um, Smith was a was a high draft pick, um, Conforto. Is that it? And there's a position players. Uh, um, yeah. I mean, well, Plowecki was technically, technically first round. That's true. He, he was with a comp pick. Um, I'm trying to think if there are any others who, Uh, Ike Davis was a first round pick, but he didn't. He, he had enough major league success. Yeah, yeah. You he, know, not not that he had a great career, but but he didn't flame out in the way that certain top prospects for other teams have flamed out. Yeah, uh, Millage, I guess, might be the Ooh, guy. Oh, there's the there's the one. Yeah, I'm. I'm I'm just going. Yeah, Millage going into 2006 was the number nine ranked prospect in all of baseball uh, by Baseball America. So that's, I think that's our answer. Yeah, rumor has it, at least rumor had it then that the Red Sox were going to do Lasting's Millage straight up for Manny Ramirez. Ah, uh, yes, and uh, yeah, that would have been a great trade. There was even that. <laughs> there, there was there was even that promotional artwork. Remember? Oh, that that was for when he was a free agent, right? Manny's right. on board. Yeah. yeah. Has there ever been a stupider moment though of like <laughs> baseball crushing fun than than the that was last thing's millage high fiving Mets fans at yeah. a game at Chase Stadium after after hitting a big home run. Was that the Know Your Role Rook incident? It had to be, right? I, th- I think that was it. We're, we're conflating a lot of mid-2000s <laughs> Mets experiences into, into into one podcast here, but I think that was the moment, the, the, the famous Billy Wagner memo to Lassing's Millage. There's a, when you Google, there <laughs> when if you Google uh, Know Your Role Rook Billy Wagner, the first result happens to be an Amazing Avenue post Woo! by the uh, SEO. legendary SEO. alum, uh, James Kanegeiser, James K, as as everyone referred to him, um, collecting some of Billy Wagner's finer moments. Uh, but... I'm not sure this actually helps with our research. <laughs> Probably not. No, but but my, my <laughs> point was this: that like you know, Smith was not, unless you're Keith Law, Smith was not really expected to be a game changing prospect for the Mets. I think some folks hoped he would be that way, but he certainly wasn't. You know, poised as the the savior of the franchise, the way that like David Wright was when when Wright came up, or or Jay Payton was, you know, when, when he was young, or even Lasting's Millage. Um, but I think that it would be 
a a rather large fall from grace if Smith was was not starting as soon as next season. And I don't know what would have to happen for that for that to be the reality. Yeah. I mean, perhaps the team decides to spend money and realizes that they miss Lucas Duda. I mean, I sure do. I do, too. All he's doing for the Rays is being Lucas Duda. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Which is awesome. <laughs> Did you read his Players' Tribune uh, letter? Uh, yes. He and Granderson both had them, right? Yes. Yeah. yeah, so I read both. Okay, I was I read both as well. Uh, I was not aware that Duda was such a fan of uh, dumplings in the village. I, yeah, uh, that's <laughs> that's a very endearing uh, trait of his. Yeah, yeah, no, and it's uh, it's it's one of those things that, like, when players start when they go out there and and like give locations that they like to hang out at and all that. I'm like, yeah, they know they're not coming back. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> like, oh yeah, this is, this is the stuff I did. Cause like, I, clearly it's been indicated to me that the team isn't going to pay me what I'm worth, you know, when I'm back in free agency this winter. Mm-hmm. So I can tell you where I used to hang out in New York because, you know, I'm not going to be there all the time anymore. Right. Yeah. Uh, and, and we should probably note, that Lucas Duda also played a large role in the Curtis Granderson Players Tribune article about yes. Club Grandy. <laughs> yeah, he was essentially the bouncer. Yeah. <laughs> also, like, creative inspiration, but, uh, you know, doubling his bouncer that you couldn't get to Granderson without going through Duda. Which seems so out of character, but but not at all. Like, you right. know, it's, it's, it's incredible. I would never have pegged him for a Drake fan, though. I will say that was... Perhaps the most shocking part of either Players' Tribune article. Yeah. Yeah, I think, you know, sort of, and it's more Duda because Granderson at least, you know, he he was traded to New York, uh, obviously to the Yankees. um, So he didn't have say in that transaction, but he chose to stick around, right? Like Duda didn't have that choice. So I I think it's somebody who, I mean, I, I had plenty of exposure in New York City, grew up in Connecticut, um, you know, got down here a bunch and had like this burning desire to get to New York City and, you know, go to school here and live here and all that kind of thing, right? That's a very different way to approach entering the city as, a, as an 18-year-old. Right. Then, okay, the team from New York City drafted me, you know, if I'm going to make it in, in this career uh as a professional baseball player ultimately i have to end up living in new york city it's a very different way to approach it where you know i guess if you're that talented at baseball you might be so focused on the game that you you don't prioritize it in that same way but it's always interesting to see guys who who didn't have the choice who end up here um you know and how they like embrace or, or maybe don't uh, embrace the city and, and, you know, what their experience is like. So it, as much as it was like, oh, Derek Jeter's starting a a website now that he's retired, like, what's that about? It is cool, um, you know, to get these stories from these guys. And, you know, whatever the setup is, obviously, if there's, you know, writers who help them with, what, with the actual writing, you're getting something from 
the the person himself uh, about that experience. And I, I don't know; it's kind of fascinating. Yeah, I agree, and uh, I also think that you know, as as if not New Yorkers, as tri-state area folks, as people who used to live in New York, whatever. If you've lived in this area, you have a certain understanding of what New York City is. But I think if you are some, if you're a boy from Southern California who's never been to the East Coast before, I can understand why New York would be so intimidating. Right. And I can understand why maybe you'd be a little bit hesitant to dive, you know, to dive right into it. Um, yeah. But, but I, if you haven't read either of those uh, Players' Tribune articles, I would recommend them both. If if only because it gives a little bit more of a human face to Duda, who sometimes was very stoic and very, uh, you know, media-averse. And, you know, the Granderson article just is is classic Curtis Granderson, just warm and really kind and uh, classy and, you know, just, just, just a good guy. And it has that great Club Grandy story. So, yeah, definitely check it out for that reason. We've gotten way off our topics here, Chris. Um, That's okay. <laughs> this is, we talked about happy stuff. This is good. Yeah. Have you seen the Mets record? Yes, exactly. <laughs> off topic is the goal. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, we can talk about our band practices tonight if we want later, if we want to get really off topic. Um, yes. <laughs> but, uh, you know, we, we were talking a little bit a little bit about injury before, um, you know, uh, as of this recording tomorrow night, Matt Harvey is going to make his second start off the disabled list. His first start, which was Saturday afternoon in Houston, was uh, a disaster. Would you, would yeah. you say it's a fair uh, assessment? Yeah, I'd say so. I mean, was it, it might have literally been the worst start of his major league career. It certainly felt that way. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, even when he's had bad days, they generally haven't gone that poorly. <laughs> I mean, you saw people on Twitter who I would say are, are certainly, uh, can, can be prone to hyperbole now and then, but people f- for whom baseball is, the, uh, how can I put this nicely, they aren't your average, like, panicky WFAN caller. Um, say, right. like, I don't know if Matt Harvey is tender to contract next year by any major league club. That's a crazy statement to make, given the position Harvey was in even four months ago. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it's it's one of those things that, like, two months ago... Um, it had sort of been bandied about by a couple of people. I don't even remember who, but, you know, a couple of writers of prominence. Um, and I, th- I think it was one local, one national writer. Um, but without knowing for sure, I don't want to say with certainty, um, mentioning that concept, you know, non-tendering Matt Harvey. And at the time I was like, I am going to write this thing and, it wasn't for lack of uh, wanting to finish it. It just sort of like, you know, life happens and whatever, and I never really finished it. But I, I was really ready to write this adamant, you know, position that, uh, 
like no way you know uh, that's ridiculous you this year has certainly gone bad uh, but you keep him around you see what might have might happen you know the talent level was too high to just let him walk away and I, I would still take that stance under the premise that this is a team in New York City that shouldn't have to worry about you know eight nine ten million whatever it is that he would make in his last year of arbitration you know a team shouldn't have to worry about that salary uh when balancing it with the potential you know even if it's seeming like an extreme unlikelihood there's still the potential that something clicks and he looks more like you know the matt harvey of old um but we don't live in that reality and that in that context, it doesn't sound like the craziest thing ever. And, and that in and of itself is crazy. Yeah. Um, I mean, it, the reason to non-tender Matt Harvey has nothing, should have nothing to do with money. It should have to do with, if, if the team was to non-tender him, it should be because he's pitching like garbage. But, I mean, he, he just looked to have... I mean, he didn't even, like, you know, the, I remember watching, like, you know, late-era Johan Santana starts. And those were hard to watch for a lot of reasons. But you occasionally saw the brilliance of Johan Santana come through in a start that did not go brilliantly. Does that make sense? Like, yeah. Like, you, you would see flashes. Did you see any flash of the old Matt Harvey in that start? Uh no. <laughs> like nothing. There was nothing there. It was it was almost fascinating in that way where I don't know if I've ever seen a pitcher this recently removed from success look totally unlike his successful self. Yeah. And yet um the time honored tradition of finding things on baseball reference during the podcast. <laughs> Uh, just by game score, which is not the only way to measure a, a, a you know a pitcher's performance, but strictly by game score, uh, Matt Harvey, that start that he made against the Astros was his second worst. Uh, last year in May, he went two and two thirds. He gave up nine runs, six of them earned on eight hits uh, against the Nationals. You know, I think that season. Turned out a little bit better in the end with them, you know, getting into that wild card game. Um, so that might not be remembered quite as clearly as some of the right, yeah, disastrous games of this year. But going by that, you know, this this Bill James, uh, you know, coined metric uh, that that ranked as a twelve game score, and Jeez. this this start, this most recent start was fifteen. Uh, both are bad. Both are yes. really bad. <laughs> oh, um, and and it, I I just looked since 2012. Uh, Johan actually had the the tie. I would Johan Santana tied with Logan Verrett and Jeremy Hefner for the worst game scores uh, uh, in you know those years of the Mets. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Ugly. Yeah, super ugly. Um, <laughs> on a like, weirdly 
more pleasant note uh, because this this just fully feels like a you know twenty twelve time warp now. Uh, we had another good Rafael Montero start. Uh, yeah, yeah, uh, decent, decent, right? decent. Yeah, let's, uh, yeah, maybe good's a bit strong. We had, we had another not disappointing Rafael Montero start. Another major league starting pitcher caliber. Yes. Yes. Yeah, um, I think. Go ahead. No, no, it's it's like it's an arbitrary endpoint sort of thing where if you go back just to the point that makes it look right, <laughs> you know he he has decent numbers, but it is approaching a month now. You know uh, that he that he's got like a sub four ERA, and by the standards of twenty seventeen Mets pitching, that's pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, you know, I, th- I think a month for a starting pitcher is still way too little to make any sort of long-term projections or claims based on. But, I mean, he he certainly looks better right now than Matt Harvey looks. He looks better than almost any other Met pitcher looks right now. He looks better than DeGrom looks right now. Now, that is not going to last. We all know that. But DeGrom has, has been hit very, very hard of late, and Montero has not. So I, I guess my question for you, Chris, is, you know, you and I have both expressed, um, you know, a lot of hope for Montero. and We've both, you know, been rooting for Montero, obviously. At what point do you start to go beyond hope and build an expectation of success for Rafael Montero for next season? Um, I mean, I guess I'd say... Sort of the that basic requirement, right? Keep it at the level of performance that he's been at now for a little while between now and the end of this season. And, you know, a guy who one or two months ago you would look at and say, hey, you know, why does he even have a 40-man roster spot over the winter? Uh, might factor into things a lot differently. And... It's tough, but, you know, we're looking at now, we're coming up on a month um, that he's had a 3.45 ERA, right? It's 31 innings. Uh, you know, we've seen pitchers like Dylan G put it together for longer stretches than that. And, you know, in the end, we knew that they weren't that good. But if he maintains that sort of level of performance, through the end of the season, uh, you know, no meltdown starts, you know, if the worst case scenario is, you know, mediocre to, to decent, um, then that's somebody that I think you can look at and say, all right, you know, we, we can't rely on him to be something great, but he might be a better bet than a few of the other guys who are in the organization. At that point, he becomes, at minimum, a guy who could win a job at a spring training. Right. And that's more than we thought we'd get from Montero possibly ever again. So, th- Yeah. To me, that's the most interesting story for the Mets at the end of the season. The, the next you know, three and a half weeks, that is the most interesting uh, storyline for me. Just Ken Montero keep up this level of of moderate success. Yeah. 
Uh, another question to look at, though, uh, for the rest of the season is to be able to uh, somewhat evaluate some of the pieces the Mets got back in their fire sale trades of the last month and a half or so. Uh, on the, that same fateful Matt Harvey start, we got major league debuts from both Jacob Rame and Jamie Callahan. Callahan was part of the Addison Reed trade, and Rame was the player to be named later in the Curtis Granderson trade. Uh, so these are two new Mets. These are both uh, career minor leaguers. As as of this, uh, as of their becoming a Met, they had never logged major league innings before. I believe for both of them. I'm not speaking at a turn there. Yep, yeah, neither one of the, right. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so we're, we're able to get a bit of a look at at these players who might wind up being bullpen pieces for the Mets. They might wind up being nothing. Uh, you were recapping the day, and we, we had split the doubleheader recap-wise. So you were watching the game with more uh, intensity than I was. What were what was your initial impressions of both these guys? Uh, I mean, just, uh, you know, not that we didn't expect it, but they throw hard. Uh, they're young. You know, they, they sort of have the same mix of pitches uh, as one another. And, you know, it even if they succeed or fail over the course of the next month it's not going to be enough time to really make any serious judgment about who they can be but you know hey it's nice to have a couple of these guys in the organization who who throw hard um probably have the ability to strike guys out you know we we, in in limited samples we don't really know yet but um yeah, I, it's it's exciting to see, uh, especially in a context of a season that went just so poorly and uh, unexpectedly poorly, really. Um, it's exciting to see these guys who were acquired that, you know, most people think that the Mets didn't really get anything in return and were, you know, completely unhappy with it. Uh I hope these guys succeed, uh, and you know, I, I've always had a little bit of a particular interest in relief pitching. So, you know, they they might just be the next Josh Smokers. They maybe they turn into something a little bit more. Um, it's it's not something that we've been accustomed to seeing. You know, young players, uh, relief pitchers who have you know, come up with the Mets and actually had a chance at being good at that role. Um, <laughs> you know, it's it, it, some of the better internal options who have, who have come up. Uh, you know, Henry Mejia was converted from starting. Uh, Jerry's Familia was converted from starting. You know, it's it, – and it's not a knock to get to that eventual destination however you get there. Uh, but – you know, I mean, Paul Seawald has shown some good things, and um, Jason Bradford, right? Like, like they've done some things that you've said, okay, maybe, you know, maybe that works. Right. Um, but it's just, the the more the merrier, you know, the, the Mets can't go into this offseason and use all of the possible guys that they have as, like, the excuse to do nothing in the bullpen. But 
it'll be fun, I think, to to watch these two. Um, some of the you know the two guys I just mentioned who are already in the organization. See what they can do over the course of the next month. Um, you know, I, I don't want to set anybody up to have to match the Addison Reed performance as a Met because it was so good. But if you get somebody who can be a late inning reliever who's under team control and doesn't cost anything for a team that, you know, really regardless, <laughs> yeah, regardless of what their situation is, they're clearly not in, you know, either whether it's ability or willingness or both, they are not going to spend like the Dodgers. Right. Um, and I, I can't remember. I mean, I, Familia, I guess, should fall into this category. Um, but it just seems like, it seems like he was, you know, getting good as he got more expensive. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. Cause the point I'm getting at is like, I, I can't remember the last time the Mets had a guy who was making league minimum, who was dominant. Oh, that's a good question. I get uh, familiar was still like around there when he had his breakout. And yeah. then, but who was the guy before Familia? Hmm. Man, I don't know. Met, yeah. The Mets bullpen. I know injuries are the thing that people uh, fixate on so much, <laughs> but the Mets bullpen might be a longer mystery. Man, sometimes I, I just get mad thinking about. Um... Braden Looper and uh, you know other uh, other horrendous Mets bullpen signings. Scott Schoenweiss. Yeah, I do. I I will slightly defend Schoenweiss. <laughs> All right. All right. Fair I enough. Know, I know. I know it ended badly, and I'm not. I'm not defending his playoff performance. I will also say he was he was one of the chronically overused Met relievers as well. That perhaps if he was used more effectively, he would not have been such a dumpster fire at the end. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, I I, I think that's that's fair. Also a rare player who has three E's in his last name. That is that is also true. And he's a Jersey guy. Yeah. And he had a horrible personal tragedy happen to him as well. So, yeah, yes. I, I'm going to lay off Scott Schoenweiss. Let's, uh, uh, <laughs> Jorge Sosa. Everything I said, <laughs> put, put Jorge Sosa in my, in, in, in my mouth instead. Oh, my goodness. I, I, it, it, as long as we're traveling down memory lane of, uh, <laughs> you know, mid-2000s Mets, uh, it is sort of insane that a lay Solaire had his entire major league career of terrible performance and like brief, very bad, you know, major league career all happened within the context of the 2006 Mets. Like one of the most dominant teams. I was going to say like the most dominant Mets team of my real memory. Yes. Like that team won the division without, feeling like they even had to try, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, wasn't even close. Just a really fun team to watch all season long. And that dude made eight starts, and he had a six-flat ERA. 
Oh, like, man. That's insane. Do you ever play, like, the Sporkle quiz, like, name all the 2006 Mets? Uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean... You know, I'm not saying that year in particular, but, you know, quizzes like that. Those... It's funny. I will get the Solaires of the world. I will get the um, Victor Martinez's of the world. I will get the... uh, Not Victor Martinez. What was his name? Victor... Uh, Zambrano. Victor Zambrano. Or Victor Diaz. uh, You know... I'll yeah. get I'll get that guy and I'll forget Tom Glavin. Like you know, mm-hmm. I, I, for some reason those those like short those short stint Mets who didn't amount to anything. I I, rem- I can remember them, but I'll forget you know Fonzie or somebody. It's uh it's amazing how our fan brains work sometimes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I'm not the best trivia guy, but it is. Um, the the one guy I never forget is. Steve Traxall. Oh yeah, agreed. The human rain delay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Two thousand six is a weird season, man. Do you ever think about who the Mets playoff starters were in two thousand six? Uh frequently. <laughs> <laughs> but it was it um, off the top of my head. It was what it was. Maine Perez, El Duque was not back, right? Uh, he he might have made one start. Did he make one, but it went really badly? That's, I'm trying to remember. That sounds about right. But they didn't but yeah, have it was, Pedro. It was, right, it was Glavin, May, and Perez, right? I think so, yeah. I mean, trust me, I would take the uh, the championship in hindsight, but it would be weird, right, like if the only championship since 86 was like Tom Glavin fueled. <laughs> right? That would be yeah, a little weird. That would be a little weird. Especially- I could live with it. Especially because, like, in our memory, Tom Glavin's lasting contribution as a Met is that horrible inning. Yes. That horrible inning to end the 2017 se- 20, 2007 season. Uh, yeah. Yeah. But, yeah, no, it's... Um, yeah, Duque did not make a postseason start that year. Man. And, I like, you know, not having Pedro was a big deal. Yeah. But not having El Duque was also sort of a big deal. Yeah, yeah. And it's crazy. He was 40 years old and, you know, he not like he had been lights out, but he, he had been pretty consistently decent when they acquired him that year. And that was a Mets staff that every starter had a very different look than the starter before. So you felt like your team was, was constantly keeping the, the opponent off balance because – you know, El Duque and Tom Glavin could not be more different if you tried, you know. So it was, uh, you got a different pitcher, a different test style of pitcher every night. It was great. Oh, man. 2006. What a what a strange team it was. <laughs> yeah. Like, it worked, and I loved it. But, like, you just, you go back and you look at the, you know, the the, the makeup of it and the types of players that they had and where they came from. Um, be it draft, free agency, trade, you know, whatever, and just sort of a a mix of some of the youngest, best players in the game, and David Wright and Jose Reyes, uh, and Beltran was still pretty young at yeah. the time, and then just like this very 
very interesting sort of uh, like veteran potpourri that worked. Yeah. And then you also had, you know, what everybody forgets is that the Mets had Billy Wagner closing, but they had Dwaner Sanchez pitching the eighth, who was, I mean, having a career year. And then he got hurt. And because of that, Xavier Nady was traded away from the team, who was also having a very good year and who never really put it together again for another team the way he put it together for the Mets that year. And, you know, they got Roberto Hernandez and uh, Ali Perez in that trade and how that one trade wound up defining, like, that trade had way more of an impact on the Mets than it was ever supposed to because Roberto Hernandez was supposed to be the get in that trade and Ali was the throw-in. And yep. Ali was a Met for how many seasons after that? At least three, right? <laughs> uh, I think it was more. I think it was more, too. Let's see. It was. The answer is too many. Uh, yes. But, yes. Uh, it was four more seasons after that. Yeah. And granted, the last one was, you know, only seven starts. And then he was sort of like banished to the bullpen and not really pitching that much. But yeah. Yeah. I was at a game in April that year where uh, Xavier Nady threw a, a ball into the crowd like he was playing catch before the inning started and he threw a ball and it hit a kid right in the face <laughs> and he felt really bad ah <laughs> uh, yeah yeah that that's one of those Mets that I was I always wanted them to reacquire him I was always rooting for that <laughs> <sighs> but yeah an even weirder season is 2005 Mets fans if you want to go back and look at a weird team <laughs> Doug Mankiewicz Etc. Um, all right, we've gotten so far off the off the rails here. Uh, yes, I, I think we're probably good to wrap it up just about here. But uh, let's just leave the folks with a couple more things to watch for in the next week or so. If you're watching Mets games, if you want to make it more interesting, um, you know, Sandy Alderson said that he's comfortable with Darno and Plawecki being a catching tandem in 2018. Uh, so maybe you know, see if see if Plawecki's for real. See if he can keep hitting the way he's hitting. Uh, what, what do you think the over under is on uh, Plawecki's starts for the rest of the season? If I put the over under at ten, would you take the over or the under? Yeah, I'd take the over. I mean, I think they at this point probably have a little bit better sense of what Darno is. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, unfortunately, it, it isn't what we all thought and hoped after 2015. But, you know, Plawecki is a guy who I think you need to uh, evaluate a little bit more. So it's not even really a an insult to Darno. It's just, like, we got to get this guy out here and, you know, see what he's got. You're forgetting that Terry Collins is the manager of the New York Mets. Yeah. <laughs> and I feel like Terry Collins is going to say, like, look, you know, Darno's our guy. He's been our guy all season, and we got to get him some playing time. True. <clears throat> Although his recent quote I thought was honest and uh, somewhat encouraging. Why the hell not? <laughs> <laughs> that is like, true. If he, if he has reached that phase um, of why the hell not, then, you know, that could, that could work in this case. Sure. And uh, I guess uh, last thing to look for. So Alderson also mentioned that yeah, they may be bringing in a, a, a sort of bargain veteran starting pitcher 
to maybe, you know, shore up the back end of their rotation for next season. Uh, so what to watch for is how terrible this team will be next year. Because, <laughs> you know, if you're watching the garbage starting pitching we've been getting of late and you think, you know, oh, they might bring in one veteran to fix this, you'll be uh, you'll, you'll be thoroughly depressed. So, no, but in, in all honesty, you know, uh, Syndergaard is making a rehab start tomorrow night for Brooklyn. So maybe we'll see him back in the majors at some point. Maybe Matt Harvey's start tomorrow won't be an absolute dumpster fire. Maybe Darno can put together a good start next time out. I would say the starting pitching is a very interesting story going for the rest of the season. Yes. Um, yeah, I mean, with Harvey, I think if I, I I'll close on him, I guess. <laughs> um, you know, the thing with coming off the surgery for thoracic outlet syndrome um ultimately I think it's just time and it's not any of the things that people want to read into or criticize about whatever he, you know, has been as a person or off the field or whatever. Right. Right. Um, I think it's just time and you know, there's not any certainty that he ever gets back to the level or near the level that he, and if he does, I wouldn't be surprised if it took another year or two, um, you know, which carries him through the end of the time that the Mets have control of him. And, yeah. Yeah. There there you have it. My, <laughs> I, It's just like, I, you know, I went and saw the first rehab start, and it, it would have been less discouraging um, if it didn't just look like, oh, right, it's 2017 Matt Harvey, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Like if he had been good before or if something looked different or whatever, but it's just, it was, he came out and was like, oh yeah, I recognize this guy. It's, you know, it's the same guy that was pitching before he missed those two and a half months. Yeah. What's, again, we're not going to get into this. We've been talking for too long already, but what's really interesting to me is how the, the average, not maybe the average, there's a large proportion of Mets fans who really, really dislike Matt Harvey for, we've talked about this before, for having personality, for going to Ranger games, etc. Yet, I have not seen a single person, you know, throw shade Noah Syndergaard's way, who was, you know, uh, putting, like, Instagram stories up all weekend of him and his girlfriend, like, cooking fancy dinners and, you know, going places while his team was, you know, no one's criticizing him for not sitting in the in the dugout in uniform while he's hurt. And yet if, right. Harvey, if Harvey did that, he'd be, you know, public enemy number one. So I think it's very interesting how the, there's a, a double standard among the, uh, the Mets fans for how their injured starting pitchers can act. But that shouldn't be a surprise to anybody. Yeah, no, not at all. <laughs> so... All right, let's enjoy this next week if we can. And reminder, uh, September 27th, Mets' uh, final home game, Amazing Avenue Audio Meetup. We will uh, we'll, we'll give you more details as it gets a little bit closer, but please try and come out to the game. No need to buy a ticket in any particular section. We're going to be hanging out in the standing room section uh, behind third base or so and uh, come out and have a beer and say hi to us.
Hey everyone, this is Steve Saipa, and I'm back to go over our minor league players of the week. And for full disclosure's sake, I'm going to include the extra games that spilled over into this week with last week's numbers, because, believe it or not, the season is pretty much over. Um, Brooklyn season's still going, they're going to be playing until Thursday, and the Rubble Ponies are in the Eastern League playoffs, so they're going to keep playing. But other than that, this is going to be our last installment of the Players of the Week for 2017. So let's get down to it. The Las Vegas 51s ended the 2017 season with a 56-86 and 86 record, putting them dead last in the Pacific Southern Division and 17 games behind the El Paso Chihuahuas. The Binghamton Rumble Ponies ended their inaugural season with an 85-54 and 54 record, putting them second in the Eastern Division, six and a half games behind the Trenton Thunder, who they're going to be facing this week in the playoffs. St. Lucie Mets ended their second half with a 30-40 and 40 record, which put them 14 games behind the South Division-leading Fort Myer Miracle, and combined with their 33-35 and 35 record from the first half, St. Lucie went 63-75 and 75 in total for 2017. The Columbia Fireflies entered their second half with a 28-42 and 42 record, 14 and a half games behind the Charleston River Dogs. Combined with their 40 and 28 record in the first half, the Colorflies are ending 2017 with a 68 and 70 record. Brooklyn season is still going as I'm recording this, um, with their last game, like I said, being played on Thursday. And basically, the only noteworthy news from Brooklyn is that since snapping their 15-game losing streak, the Cyclones are nine and two. And that puts them at 24-49 and 49 for the season. The Kingsport Mets went 1-4, and they are end- ending 2017 with a 29-37 and 37 record, which is fourth place in the Appalachian League West. And the GCL Mets are ending their season with a 19-37 and 37 record, having gone 2-5 and five for the week. And now, our pitcher of the week for week 22 is Binghamton Rumble Ponies right-hander Corey Oswalt. Oswalt started two games this week and combined to allow one run over 11 innings, giving up six hits, walking four, and striking out 17. So these starts put an excellent end to Oswalt's season, uh, a season that he was named Eastern League Pitcher of the Year. For his season, he went 12-5 for Binghamton, posting a 2.28 ERA in 134.1 innings. He allowed 118 hits, he walked 40, and he struck out 119. His ERA was top in the Eastern League, while his 12 wins were second, and his 119 strikeouts were fourth. Uh, Key to most of his... not most. Key to much of his success this season was his ability to keep the ball on the ground and limit home runs. He gave up just four for the entire season. So... Uh, Corey Oswalt is a big, imposing guy. He's six foot five and he weighs two hundred fifty pounds. But despite his big frame, he's not a power pitcher. He's more of a pitch to contact, ground ball kind of guy, thanks to his fastball. Um, the pitch is fringe average in velocity. It sits about eighty-eight to ninety-two or so, but it has good movement and it gets a lot of sink when he's able to fully extend his arm. Though when he doesn't, he gets in trouble um, and has. Issues locating the bottom of the plate and giving the pitch, uh, you know, the sink that it needs for him to be successful. He complements his fastball with a slider and a changeup, but both of those pitches are kind of inconsistent. Uh, the slider, which sits about 80 to 84, sometimes has shallow, sweepy break, and other times it's a little more sharper with tighter spin. And when it's more slurvy, the pitch is kind of fringy. But when he's able to tighten it up a bit, it's about, you know, fringe average or so. It's better when it's tighter. 
and then his changeup, which is also a pitch that's in the mid eighties. It doesn't have too much velocity differential from his fastball. You know, the the changeup is in the mid eighties, and his fastball is about eighty eight to ninety two. So at best, he has about you know five to ten miles per hour differential on it. So because of that, the pitch's um, key is in its fade. When he tries to be too kind of fine or precise with it, it usually has less fade. Whereas when he just kind of aims for a specific quadrant of the plate and not a specific point on the plate and just lets it go, the pitch is closer to fringe average with more fade. So looking at Corey Oswald's stuff and then knowing the scouting report, you kind of get two very different impressions. And it raises a very important question. Do you add Corey Oswald to the Fordman roster this winter? My gut reaction initially is no, because I don't think that he has the stuff to be a successful MLB starter or a reliever. But at the same time, the offseason rosters are kind of a game strategy, and I think that Oswald does have a high enough chance of being selected in the Rule 5 draft that he should be put on the 40-man roster. Ultimately, I would add him. But he's not priority. Depending on how many spots are available, guys like Adonis Uceta, Ty Bachelor, Gershon, Batista, you know, three hard-throwing relievers, those guys get priority. But once they're protected, assuming that there are more spots left over, uh, Corey Oswald could be added. And now our hitter of the week is Binghamton Rumble Pony's first baseman, Peter Alonso. He went 8 for 30 with three doubles, a triple, two home runs, four RBI, two walks, and six strikeouts. And for the year, which is split over St. Lucie and Binghamton, Alonso hit 289, 359, 524 with 18 home runs, 63 RBI, 27 walks, and 71 strikeouts. So Alonso had a pretty huge turnaround about midway through the year. He only got into about 10 games in April and May combined because of a broken hand. And then because of rust from the winter and dealing with the injuries and whatever else, he wasn't very effective in those games anyway. But he started heating up in June, and he really took off from there for the rest of the season. In 22 games in June, he hit 275, 352, 500 with three home runs. In 29 games in July, he hit 336, 394, 603 with eight home runs. And then in 29 games in August, he hit 312, 395, 569 with five home runs. One thing that is really important to note and may have something to do with the excellent numbers that he started putting up in the batting average department is the fact that around June or so, he started working with St. Lucie manager Chad Kreuter to develop a quote-unquote slump-proof swing. And that basically entailed doing a lot of drills designed to just focus on making contact. And and another thing that he was doing was working on his mind frame at the plate. Uh, coming to the season, Alonso was known as a guy who was who a guy who had a solid understanding of pitching strategy, and could probably recognize when he was being set up. But he just wasn't really able to prevent himself from swinging at stuff that he probably shouldn't, especially uh, stuff on the outer half. But over the course of the summer, according to uh, some quotes that he gave to Baseball America. He's basically quieted his mind, and he's trying to just ignore all the hitter strategy and pitcher counter strategy and hitter counter counter strategy that's bouncing around in his head, and just basically focus on swing, bat, hit, ball. And just based on the numbers, I mean, something seems to be clicking. So we know that Alonso's 
plus raw power, and now he's shown the ability to translate that into in-game power. And at the very least, he's improved his ability to hit for average somewhat. And that's something that's dragged him down. And really, the only thing left to judge him is his defense. And unfortunately, whereas his ability to hit for average trended up this season, his defense trended down. Uh, coming into the year, Alonso's known... He wasn't known as a good defender, but he wasn't necessarily known as a bad one either. Basically, nothing he did at first base really stuck out at being particularly good. And it was really just the fact that he's a right-handed first baseman that basically raised the eyebrows and got people to tisk tisk. Um, but around June or so in the summer, Baseball Perspectives got some looks at him, got some looks at him, and the reports were not good. He basically put on some bad weight and didn't show much athleticism. He showed trouble receiving balls, fielding them, catching throws to first, overrunning and underrunning pop-ups. Just a lot of basic stuff that you would think that any first baseman would be able to do proficiently. But for what it's worth, I guess that there's time for Alonzo to improve in the field because even though the position isn't really new to him or anything like that, it's not like he's a super specialized first baseman playing his entire career because he can't play anywhere else. Um, in third base, he split time at first and third. In his first year at the University of Florida, he played 30 games at the DH, 24 as the first baseman, and 4 as the third baseman. In his sophomore year with the Gators, he played all 39 games at first, and then in his junior year, he played all 57 games at third. Since being drafted, he's spent all of his time basically um, playing first base. He played 27 games with the Cyclones at first, all 78 with the St. Lucie, and then he basically spent 50-50 in Binghamton between DH and first. But that comes out to about 60% of his time or so being played at first, which is a lot more than he spent in any other position, but it's still not 100% of his focus. So maybe next season with some additional time in the major league camp and hopefully not starting the hurt or anything like that, he'll be able to improve on his defense and become you know, pass, more passable there. And assuming that he does at least some of that, assuming that the gains that he made in the batting average department are legit and hoping that he improves his defense for first base. Does that make Peter Alonso a top 100 prospect going into 2018? I don't necessarily think so, but it definitely, in my opinion, uh, puts him in the top 10 first baseman prospect list. Looking over at MLB.com, their first baseman list consists of Brendan McKay from Tampa Bay, Dom Smith, Ryan McMahon from Colorado, Reese Hoskins from Philly, Pavin Smith from Arizona, Bobby Bradley from Cleveland, Evan White from Seattle, Nick Prado from Kansas City, Ronald Guzman from Texas, and Matt Dias from the Angels. Smith and Reese Hoskins are probably going to get 130 at-bats when the season ends, so they're probably going to lose their rookie eligibility. So assuming that everyone else stays up there, there's going to be at least two spots that open up. And... Because Alonzo profiles similarly and put up similar numbers to Bobby Bradley and Ronald Guzman, two guys that are in the back of that list, I think that Alonzo will also end up on the list um, on the back side of it, about you know five to ten somewhere in that range. And since I'm on the topic of Alonzo, I'm gonna quickly bring up someone that 
a lot of our listeners probably are still familiar with, Will Craig. Um, he was the Pirates' 2016 first-round draft, and a lot of industry sources thought that the Mets would go after him, and consensus was um, that if they did, that would have been an, an underwhelming pick. And as it turns out, the Mets picked Justin Dunn at 19, and then the Pirates picked Craig at 22. And then in the second round, with the 64th pick, the Mets picked up Peter Alonso, and the consensus was pretty much everyone liked that pick, because at the time it was seen as basically getting Will Craig light for less money, plus that initial first-round pick. Now that everyone's season... Uh, 2017 season is done and in the books. We can look at the two and compare. And Craig finished up his season at Bradenton, which is the Philly, uh, the Pirates' high A affiliate, with a 271, 373, 371 line, hitting six homers, and playing 93 of his 123 games at first instead of third, which is what he was drafted as. So for once, it looks like the Mets made the right pick. <laughs> of the two guys that profiled very similarly. They signed the guy that did better at a higher level for less money. So those are our Mets Money League Players of the Week. Our final check-in for 2017. Maybe next week I'll review the list, uh, see what guys made it the most, see which guys had the best weeks, see which guys had the most out-of-nowhere weeks, you know, stuff like that. I'm going to need topics once Binghamton's playoff run ends. So... Send amazing Avenue audio those minor league related questions, please. You know, I I need something to talk about for the next couple of weeks between now and when the Arizona Fall League starts. And I don't think anyone is interested in listening me babble about wrestling, which wouldn't make much sense on this Mets related podcast. <laughs> so until then, I am Steve Saipa, and I'll talk with everyone next week on Amazing Avenue Audio. Hi, this is Aaron York for Amazing Avenue Audio, and today I want to talk about a couple of recent Mets stories that have interested me, and the first one is that the team signed Norichika Aoki uh, right as September began. He joined the team in, in Houston for the series with the Astros, and it's an interesting signing, not only because Aoki is going to help the Mets not embarrass themselves down the stretch by starting Brendan Nimmo and Juan Lagares and Travis Tyrone every game, but he's going to probably be on the team next year because he's arbitration eligible. Uh, he's arbitration eligible for 2018. It's his last year of arbitration after he he's bounced around. The majors a little bit since he first came to uh, stateside in 2012 with the Brewers. He's played for the Royals, Giants, and Mar- Mariners, and now three teams this year, including the the Blue Jays. So uh, Aoki's, Aoki's been around. He's been a pretty consistent player wherever he's been. He's not a great defensive player, so he's not really going to be a solution in center field, it doesn't look like, but... He is a a pretty great contact hitter. In fact, he's never had a strikeout rate above 10% until this year, and, it, and it's still only 13%. But, but if that goes down to his career average, he's only striking out 8% of the time. He walks 
a little over 7% of the time for his career. So this is a guy who's going to put the ball in play, and he's going to hit for a decent batting average, and and the uh, the lack of strikeouts gonna is going to help him get on base. So he's someone who, on a, on a good team, is probably the fourth or fifth outfielder, uh, especially since he doesn't hit home runs like every other player seems to do these days. And he's not that great defender you want out there, but... With all the players striking out these days, you could use a guy who's going to hit for contact, especially coming off the bench. Sometimes you don't need that home run. You just need a base hit, and there's just not a lot of guys who are concentrating on getting the bat on the ball these days. So I like Aoki, and he's, he's hitting for a career-high 131 ISO this year. Oh, not a career, He hit for a higher ISO in his, his rookie season with the Brewers, but... This is higher than he's done recently, and he's hit doubles in three straight games with the Mets. So he's he's stroking the ball pretty well uh, this season, despite bouncing around in three different organizations. He's hitting 279, 326, 410, and it looks like what the Mets are trying to do by signing a player who they can keep in 2018 is they are trying to scrape together an outfield. We know what they have in Conforto and Yoenis Cespedes. Uh, it looks like Conforto, with his the surgery to repair his shoulder, is going to be ready in in time for the maybe not the very beginning of spring training, but but certainly for some spring training action. So that would be good news. But the point is, the Mets have two stud outfielders, and for the third spot, they might try to scrape them, them together with Brandon Nimmo, Norichike Aoki, Juan Lagares. Uh, something of a three-headed platoon if they do keep Aoki, but Brandon Nimmo's hitting the ball a little bit lately. He certainly knows how to get on base himself. I compared him in a recent article to Gregor Blanco, the former Braves and Giants outfielder who is wasn't a great power hitter, but he, he played defense, he got on base, and he was a guy who was really useful in a pinch. So, uh, and you and you also have Aoki being able to hit for contact and and just not kill the lineup. He just doesn't Aoki just doesn't make that many outs, so that should be useful as well. And the Mets, we don't know how much of the money coming off the books they're going to reinvest, but if they go with this three-headed third outfielder plan, then it gives them more to spend on spots in the infield, like second base, third base. Uh, they, Sandy Alderson just said they're they're satisfied with catcher, which is just it's just tough to throughout the league. It's tough to find offense at that position. So if if Travis Darno's Babbitt bounces back, that might give them something positive there. But the point is, Aoki, he's going to be inexpensive. He can combine with maybe Nimmo and Lagares and give the Mets more money to spend on the infield. And certainly that starting pitching rotation and bullpen could still use some help. So that's an interesting move there. And then you have Matt Harvey. The Mets wanted to pitch him on Wednesday night because he requested to pitch on Wednesday night, which would have only been three days rest because of the doubleheader on Saturday. And fortunately, whether the Mets were really just looking at a weather forecast for Wednesday or whether they finally came to their senses, they decided, hey, it's a meaningless game. There's no point using this pitcher on three days rest. So we're going to insert either Tommy Alone or Robert Gazelman for Wednesday and Harvey can pitch on normal rest Thursday. And 
I don't know why that wasn't the plan all along. Maybe they were just sick of Harvey complaining and said, fine, you go ruin your career. We only have you for one more year anyway. Maybe maybe it really was them just getting sick of him and just like, do whatever you want. We're, we're done. Like, we obviously, we know in the past there's been conflict between Harvey and the club. So there's a possibility that happened. There's a possibility that they just mismeasured things. I don't know, but it's good news that the team has come to its senses. Put Harvey on Thursday, put someone else on Wednesday. It doesn't matter who it is at this point, And that uh, sanity can prevail for now. Uh, so those are the two stories I found interesting recently, and I'm kind of an Aoki lover, so I'm hoping that the team holds on to him in 2018, even if it's just for a bench piece. He's a really useful player, and and that's about it. We'll see how he we'll see if he continues to play well for the team. He's gotten off to a great start with the Mets so far, so we'll see how that goes. Uh, This has been Aaron York for Amazing Avenue Audio. I spent two weeks out of the country, and I watched maybe 10 innings of baseball while I was gone and I have to say that it was the best decision I've ever made so this week's Panic City Meter is not going to tell you to panic about Jacob deGrom or Ahmed Rosario's finger or Michael Conforto's shoulder or whatever the heck is wrong with Cespedes I've genuinely lost track at this point or even David Wright's also whatever the heck is wrong with him at this point get a new hobby folks that does it for another installment of amazing avenue audio thank you so much for listening as a reminder we want you to come out on september 27th and hang out with us at city field more details coming soon we would also love you to go to amazingavenue.com check us out there check out our writing our games our recaps our everything else we've got going on over there there's a lot we hope you dig into it and we hope you dig it you can also find Amazing Avenue on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Amazing Avenue. You can download our show directly from blogtalkradio.com, grab it from Stitcher or Apple Podcasts, or your podcatcher of choice. We ask you to please rate, review, and subscribe it in whatever format you grab it in, but especially at Apple Podcasts, that really does help, and we appreciate it. You can also find all of our contributors this week on Twitter. I am at Brian Needs a Nap, Chris is at Chris McShane, Steve is at Steve Saipa, Aaron is at Aaron P. York, and Kate is at Kate E. Feldman. So, uh, we recorded the show, obviously, before Matt Harvey's decent start on Thursday night, uh, before the Brendan Nimmo show, all that. So let's see what happens this weekend. Maybe we can get some more happy surprises in that category. And so, until next time, let's go Mets!